Good morning. Well, that's a perfect hymn to lead into this message. Victorious Lord and coming King. Last week in uh, in Romans 5, verses 12 to 14, we considered the cataclysmic impact of Adam's sin, which brought the curse of death, not only to mankind, but to all of God's creation. Uh, verse 12 said, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Ever since the fall of Adam, the curse of death has reigned, not only over the hearts of men, but over all that we see around us. It's simply not possible to rightly interpret and understand uh, the evil and pain and injustice and corruption and decay that we see at every turn if we do not accept and humbly submit uh, ourselves to that which God has declared about how things came to be as they are. But of course, the story of sin and death, uh, sin and death does not end with Adam or with us. And it doesn't end with death being victorious. It ends with death being utterly defeated. It ends with Jesus Christ, the perfect sinless man and perfect God, pouring out His own life's blood to redeem us from the curse of sin and death, removing the sting of death forever. And just as the reign of death extended to all of creation, much more will Christ's glorious victory over sin and death extend to all that God has made, all that has been created by Christ for Him and through Him. That marvelous theme, the superabundant grace of God in Jesus Christ, which has overturned the reign of death and instituted our reign in life through Him, is the theme of this amazing passage that we're going to look into this morning. Now here again is a quick... Uh, see if we can get our... Okay. Well, I'll give you the verbal overview of the of the entire passage, which is verses 12 through 21 that we started last time. First, uh, through one man, uh, we see the origin of sin and the reign of death. That man, of course, is Adam, and that's in verses 12 through 14. Then, in verses 15 to 17, how Adam and Christ are different. The free gift is not like the transgression. In verses 18 and 19, how Adam and Christ are alike, one for many. And finally, as Paul concludes this passage in verses 20 and 21, we see the superabundant reign of grace through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now we talked about those, the first point last time, and we'll be looking at the remaining three points today. Uh, before we get into the detail of the, of the content of this passage in verses 15 to 21, though, I want to first address a, a bit of the structure in verses 15 to 19, because there's some very interesting things going on here that help inform where Paul is going with this passage. Before we do any of that, let's, uh, let's read through the passage. Now, even though I'm putting this up here, it's to your benefit to look at it in your own Bible because that's the one you're going to be using. 
but this will help you kind of see where we are in the passage. This is the New American Standard, the old New American Standard, <laughs> pre-1977, uh, back when I was a, a kid in Christ and got my first Bible. I've had it ever since. Different, different copies, but same Bible. Verses 15 through 21, actually start in verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is the type of him who was to come. Verse 15, But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from the transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Verse 18, For th So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, many will be made righteous. And the law came in that the transgression might increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would grant us this morning that we may clearly see through Paul's words the amazing abundance of your grace toward us in Jesus Christ. The grace that is infinitely greater than all our sin. The grace that puts an end to the reign of death and makes us to reign in life through Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Master. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. By the way, I meant to have you stand for the reading of Scripture, so next time you can remind me. In verses 15 to 19, Paul presents first a contrast and then a comparison between the transgression of Adam and the free gift that came through Jesus Christ. Now that contrast is in verses 15 to 17, and the comparison is in verses 18 and 19. And Paul's overriding point in this entire passage in verses 12 to 21 is to make clear that the gift that came, don't look up there for the moment. In fact, I'll black that out. <laughs> to make it clear that the gift that came through Jesus Christ overwhelms and overcomes the transgression of Adam, not just by a little, 
but in superabundant measure. In both sections of this passage that we're about to look at, Paul speaks about how Adam's one act and Jesus' one act each affected many people. And both portions of the passage speak about the outcome of each man's act in similar terms. Uh, the two different outcomes. But the structure of the verses in these two sections is markedly different. Now let's look at that structure a little bit. First, verses 15 to 17, what we see is the language of contrast. He begins, of course, by saying the free gift is not like the transgression. So immediately we're talking contrast. And then he says, and, and I'm just putting in portions of the verses up here so you can see the structural parts. For if by the transgression... X, much more did the grace of God do thus. Okay. Verses 16 and 17, similar structure. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. And then it has for the, on the one hand and on the other hand. And then it ends as verse 15 did. For if by the transgression, much more those who receive the abundance of grace. Okay. So you see the, the language of contrast. Verses 18 and 19, on the other hand, are, uh, show us the language of comparison. So then, as through one transgression, even so through one act of righteousness. Verse 19, very similar. As through one man's disobedience, even so through the obedience of the one. So you see what, I'm, what we're talking about here? Contrast versus comparison. Now here's what... Uh, what I believe is going on uh, in that structure. And that is, I believe that in verses 15 to 17, Paul is focusing on the outcomes of the two acts, the two events, the transgression of Adam and the gift through Christ. Whereas in verse 18 and 19, he's focusing on the one-to-many issue, uh, which is similar in the transgression and uh, with the gift. So first, there's a stark contrast that's as different as night and day in verses 15 through 17. And then in verses 18, there's a similarity in the, the one-to-many aspect of the two actions. Nonetheless, when we get to verses 18, 19, you're going to see that even though Paul talks in the language of comparison, he ends up focusing on the differences between the two acts and the two outcomes. So I just want to alert you to this stuff so you can kind of see uh, how Paul's argument unfolds. First, verses 15 to 17, how Adam and Christ are different. The free gift is not like the transgression. And that, that's the wording with which he begins. But the free gift is not like the transgression. Um, now I want to point out one other thing real quick structurally here. And that is that in verses 15 to 17, you've got, if you look at the colors up there, you've got two pieces that are all, that are very similar structurally between verse 15 and then verses 16 and 17 if you take them together as if they were one long verse. But in 16 and 17, you've also got a statement stuck in the middle that doesn't match up. Okay, just want to show you that and then we'll talk through this. You, everybody see what I'm talking about there? All right. Verse 15 gives us the first pass at the contrast between the two events and the two outcomes of these two events. Paul starts by simply saying, but the free gift is not like the transgression. The word he uses here for free gift is derived from the Greek word for grace. 
And every time God is the one doing the giving, and that word is used, the idea presented is that of an unmerited, absolutely free gift. It's free because it proceeds purely from the grace of God toward objects who don't deserve it. Paul also uses two other words for gift in verses 15 to 17, and those words are a little simpler. They have the connotation of something given. Uh, But all three words are kind of bounced back and forth almost synonymously within the passage, so I don't see a purpose in trying to make a sharp distinction between them. I think what Paul is getting at by by using those three words is that that which God accomplished at the cross of Jesus Christ is a gift to us in every sense of the word gift. Now, another interesting thing that that Paul does with the contrast in verse 15 has to do with how many words he uses for each half of the contrast. I I think this this is fascinating, and it holds true throughout the passage. When he presents the outcome of the transgression, he uses few words, and he's very concise. He doesn't embellish at all. He just says, by the transgression of the one, the many die. But when he presents the other side of the contrast, the outcome of the gift, his language is far more effusive. He says, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. Yet another difference between the two halves of this contrast in verse 15 has to do with the use of proper names. When Paul speaks of the transgression in this verse, the name of Adam is assumed, not stated. In fact, verse 14 is the only place in this, in this overall passage in which the name of Adam is actually stated. Uh, so he, he assumes the name but doesn't doesn't present it. And yet when he gets to the second half, to the gift part, he specifically names God the Father and Jesus Christ. Um, all right. And he says, uh, again, much more. And, and by the way, he not only mentions them both, he attributes grace to both. Both of them act in bestowing grace upon us. And that grace abounded. <laughs> now, I believe uh, all of this is very intentional on Paul's part. These little structural and language differences are not, uh, they're not unimportant. I think they reflect the artistry with which Paul presents these great themes in this passage. The difference between the transgression and the gift is not simply that one resulted in the death of many and the other resulted in grace toward many, but that the grace bestowed upon us through the gift of Jesus Christ is abundant grace. It is grace given to us freely. It is grace given to us personally. And it is grace given to us super abundantly. Verse 16 is a tricky verse to translate because there are really no verbs in it. I looked at the Greek and at several translations as well as at the context in which this verse occurs, and uh, here's what I came up with for the best I could do of a very literal translation. 
The words you see in italics are the ones that, that I added but that aren't explicit or clear in the Greek. This is my translation. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment from one transgression was unto condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift from many transgressions was unto justification. Now again, I wouldn't, I wouldn't get too hung up on the grammar, but we need to focus on the pieces here. Because this is very significant, the way Paul, I think he strips this verse down in order to make a very stark comparison between the parts. The first point of contrast in the verse is between the judgment and the free gift. We deserve the judgment, but through Jesus Christ we receive the free gift, the unmerited gift, if you want to call it such, the grace gift. The second point of contrast is between the phrase from one transgression and the phrase from many transgressions. I think this is intriguing. Um, It's as if Paul is saying, one transgression got us into this catastrophic mess and everyone was affected. But the free gift doesn't just cover that transgression. It covers many transgressions, the many transgressions that followed after that one and from that one. Now, this is critically important because Paul has already said in verse 12 that through one man sin entered the world and death through sin. And then he immediately said, and death spread to all men because all sinned. Indeed, Paul spent most of chapters 1 through 3 driving home the fact that we are all sinners and we're all worthy of condemnation. Now, let's say that a highly contagious disease gets into the human population and it starts with one person. And then it spreads rapidly from that person to another and from those two to, say, eight or ten others and from those eight or ten to forty or fifty others and so on and so on. It started with one infected person, but in a short time, there's a massive number of people that has been infected. If you find a cure, it serves little purpose to go and administer the cure to the first person that got the infection alone. The cure has to deal not with just the starting point, but with the whole epidemic that resulted from that first infection. And I'm not trying to stir up the whole zombie apocalypse uh, mentality. The cure to our sin and to the curse of our sin had to go further than merely dealing with the one sin that made us all sinners. According to verse 19, It had to address the fact that we are all sinners both in position and in practice and that both sin and the curse of sin has affected us all. And that's exactly what Paul says that God did through Jesus Christ. Now the the third and last piece of the contrast in verse 16 is the juxtaposition of condemnation versus justification as the radically different outcomes of these two biggest events in human history the transgression of Adam, and the gift through Jesus. The judgment that we incurred through one transgression results in eternal condemnation. But the free gift that comes through Jesus Christ covers and covers many transgressions results in eternal justification. The gift utterly overturns the curse for us who belong to Jesus Christ. 
by faith. The gift wins. The gift defeats the curse. In verse 17, Paul raises again the theme of the reign of death that he introduced back in verse 14. In verse 14, he said, Death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of Adam's offense, who was a type of him who was to come. And as we said last time, when he says death reigned from Adam to Moses, that doesn't mean it stopped with Moses. It means he was talking specifically about what happened before the law was given. But death continued to reign because the law didn't fix things. We'll talk more about that in a moment. Here in verse 17, Paul declares that the reign of death which came through the transgression of Adam will be put to an end for those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness. Once again, as in verse 15, he uses very uh, muted plain language when he's talking about the transgression, but effusive language when he talks about the victory of the gift. He says, death reigned through the one when he talks about the transgression. But then for the gift, he says, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Again, the name of Adam is implied, but the name of Jesus Christ is proclaimed. All of those who were made recipients of the grace of God and of the gift of God's righteousness, His righteousness, will reign in life through the One, Jesus Christ. So ever since Adam, death reigned, but now we will reign. We will reign in life through Jesus Christ. As we touched on last week, the reign of death that came about through the transgression of the one man, Adam, is an all-encompassing reign. Everything both in us and around us has been impacted by the reign of death. And the redemption that has come through the one man, Jesus Christ, will ultimately destroy that reign of death and it will prove also to be all-encompassing. It will be a redemption of all of creation. One of the most amazing things to me about this coming deliverance of all things from the curse of the fall is that the renewal of God's creation, the whole created order, hinges and depends entirely on what God does with us. As we saw in Romans 8.18, that for which all of creation is eagerly awaiting is what? It's to... the revealing of the sons of God. Our glorification will usher in the redemption of God's whole creation. And here in Romans 5.17, who is it that Paul says will reign in life when the reign of death is ended? It's us. It's not angels. It's not the physical creation. It's the redeemed of God. Now, to use Paul's words in verse 17, it is those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness. Most importantly of all, Paul says that our reign in life, let me say it again, most importantly of all, Paul says that our reign in life will be through the one Jesus Christ. The reign that we will enjoy will not be about us 
in any sense. That's hard to think of, right? A king whose reign is not about himself, or a prince whose reign is not about himself. Um, rulers, uh, king, people who uh, who become in who get positions of great power tend to be all about themselves. Well, look at what Paul says about our reign in life. He says it will be through the one. Jesus Christ. It'll be in and through and about Him. The life that we have in Him is the only life that's real. We will take, we will take the crown of righteousness and of life that He gives to us on that day and we'll cast it back at His feet because as the angels and the multitude of the, of the redeemed will then declare in the presence of God according to Revelation 5, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing, every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying, to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. Who among men is worthy to reign in glory over God's creation? There is only one. Verses 18 and 19, Paul talks about how Adam and Christ are alike. And again, I said, as I said before, he focuses on the one-to-many idea. As we discussed previously, based on the way the verses are structured, Paul's pointing out in verses 18 and 19 that the transgression of Adam and the gift through Christ are in one respect very similar. And the way in which they are like is that in each case the action of one man affected many people. But when you look at the detail, everything that's not highlighted there, the detail of, of what Paul says in these two verses about the two events and the two outcomes, it quickly becomes apparent that the only thing that they have in common is this one-to-many relationship. I find this to be a very clever way for Paul to turn our attention directly back to the differences between the two acts and the two outcomes. Sort of reminds me of one particular version of an old joke I learned when I was a kid. What's the difference between an elephant and a mailbox? Everything. <laughs> Unless the mailbox is gray. The other version uh, of the answer is, I don't know, but I'm not going to send you out to get the mail. I confess I learned that one back when my parents were still waiting for my humor to become funny. You know that phase of child raising, right? The only way the transgression of Adam, the only way the transgression of Adam is like the gift through Jesus is that in both cases the act of one man affected many people. In every other conceivable way, these two acts are dramatically different. Verses 18 and 19 are closely parallel, very closely parallel, and here's how the parts line up. This is kind of like what we saw in verse 16. First, uh, you see, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, verse 18. Verse 19, as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners. Okay, that's the negative side. On the positive side, even so, through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. Through, one, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. 
Again, I think there's divine artistry in these two verses, as in the whole passage. But Paul uses this very precise parallelism not, parallelism not only between the two verses, but within each verse. And he does so to, to highlight again the, this, what ultimately ends up being a contrast in the comparison section of the passage. He drives home how completely the one act of righteousness and obedience of Jesus Christ overturns the destructive impact of the one transgression or one act of disobedience of Adam. Now, these two verses look at the same two events and the same two outcomes, but they view it from slightly different angles. As I see it, verse 18 looks at the, at the, at the two outcomes from the perspective of man's relationship with God. Verse 19, on the other hand, looks at the two outcomes from the perspective of man's nature. Now, bear with me. I'll try to explain that. I believe verse 18 is talking about God's provision of justification, and verse 19 is talking about God's provision of sanctification. And he's priming the punt for what's about to come in chapter 6. Verse 18 is talking about our legal standing in the eyes of God and the impact of that standing on our relationship with him. The one transgression of Adam, which pressed beyond the boundaries of righteousness required by the character of, uh, of God, resulted in condemnation for all men in the eyes of God. But the one act of righteousness of Jesus Christ, which is perfectly in keeping with God's character, results in justification of men in the eyes of God. So the death of Christ utterly and absolutely reverses our standing in the eyes of God from eternally condemned to eternally justified. To put it in one other possible way, verse 18 is looking at what God has done about the penalty of our sin. Verse 19 looks at the two same events and outcomes from the perspective of man's nature. If verse 18 is talking about what God did to address the penalty of our sin, verse 19 is talking about what God did to address the power that sin had over us. Verse 19 declares that Adam's act of disobedience made many people to be sinners, to be sinners. But Christ's preeminent act of obedience made many to be righteous. Jesus redeems not only our position, our standing in the eyes of God, He redeems our very nature by giving us God's nature as a gift to them. Stay with me. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul says that God made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God How? In Him. In Him. His death doesn't merely change our status before God. It changes us. He fulfills the promise of the new covenant that was made back in Ezekiel chapter 36, hundreds of years before the death of Christ. A promise regarding a new heart and a new spirit that God would give to His people. And I love this because it it goes right along with what we were focusing on in our worship this morning. Ezekiel. 
God wrote through the prophet Ezekiel, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. Put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Now this is exceedingly important for us to grasp. The gift that God has given to us through Jesus Christ doesn't only impute the righteousness of God to us, it imparts the righteousness of God to us. It not only accomplishes our justification, it accomplishes our sanctification and one day our glorification. All of that was secured when Jesus Christ died at the cross and was raised. Now, it's most unfortunate that there are many Christians who grievously diminish the value of the gift because they attribute to it the power and the purpose to justify, but not the power and the purpose to sanctify. I'm going to say that again in case I've been putting you to sleep with all this structural nuts and bolts of of this passage. Many Christians grievously diminish the value of God's amazing gift to us in Jesus Christ because they attribute to it the power and the purpose to justify, but not the power and the purpose to sanctify. They treat the death of Jesus Christ as a ticket to heaven, but make it of no value here and now. They treat it like an insurance policy they can carry around in their back pocket that has no real value until they die. That is an insult to the gospel, and it is an insult to Jesus Christ who poured out his life's blood to buy for us both justification and real righteousness in, in our character. That which Paul refers to as the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, that amazing grace that God poured out abundantly toward us in Jesus Christ was given not only to free us from the penalty of sin, but to free us from the power of sin. And that starts here and now. This astounding gift is free to us. It's undeserved, but it came at an infinite cost to God And for you who have received it, it lays absolute claim to your lives. In fact, the gift is your life. The relationship that God purchased for you with Himself when He sent His Son to the cross, that relationship is your life. We talked about John 17, the high priestly prayer this morning. I know I say this verse too much. No, it's not possible. John 17, 3. This is eternal life that they may know Thee, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom Thou hast sent. That rings in, that rings in my, in my mind and in my heart all the time. Because every time I lose sight of that, I lose sight of real life. And I'm focused on the wrong things. My life is that relationship, and so that relationship defines my life. It has complete claim over me. And Paul's gonna go on to say a whole lot about practical freedom from the power of sin in the very next chapter. But we'd be seriously remiss if we didn't acknowledge that he's already priming the pump for the matter of our sanctification here in 
the end of chapter 5. Now, there's one more significant distinction between verses 18 and 19 that I'm compelled to address, and it has to do with who is affected by the two events or actions. That is, by the sin of Adam and by the gift through Jesus. And this is where I want to talk about the all and many thing. Verse 18 says all men were affected. Verse 19 says the many were affected. Now, I'll tell you straight up, I am not going to get into a discussion about limited versus unlimited atonement. Because I believe that would seriously distract from the point of this passage. But I will say this. Whether you believe that Christ died for the sins of all mankind or only for the sins of the elect, the Bible clearly, repeatedly, and emphatically rules out any notion of universal salvation. Paul has already made it crystal clear that we are all condemned because we have all fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23, and everything that led up to it. But we will not all be justified, and we will not all be made righteous. Indeed, the Bible makes it very clear that most people will not be saved. In Matthew 7, verse 13 and 14, Jesus said, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and many are those who enter by it. And then he immediately goes on to say, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And few are those who find it. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. In Acts 4, 12, Peter said, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven which has been given among men by which we must be saved. So if even if you conclude that the death of Christ in some sense paid the eternal debt of every man's sin, that payment can only be said to be effective for or applied to those who trust in Jesus Christ and are justified by grace through faith. Now, this, of course, is also demanded by all that Paul said in Romans 1 through 4 about the universal depravity of men and about salvation only by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. There's only one way to receive the gift that redeems you from the curse of sin, the curse which is eternal condemnation, and that way is Jesus Christ. If you are here today and you have not taken Him at His word, if you have not trusted only in Him and not at all in you, then I pray that you will trust in Him today and be saved. In the last two verses of this wonderful passage, Paul makes a statement regarding how the law of Moses played into this contrast between the transgression of Adam and the gift through Jesus Christ. He says, and the law came in that the transgression might increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's a powerful statement. Paul's words at the beginning of verse 20 no doubt raised the eyebrows of many of his Jewish readers. 
The law came in that transgression might increase. And the Jews on the whole believed that the law was given so that they could become righteous in the eyes of God by obeying it. But Paul shot down that idea very forcefully back in Romans 1.18 through 3.20. And he concluded that whole section in 3.19 and 20 by saying this, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who were under the law, that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now, in Romans 5.20, Paul says, The law not only gave men the knowledge of sin, but the very purpose for which the law was given was so that sin might increase. He's giving us the seed form of a proposition that he's going to go on to develop further in chapter 7, so I'm not going to jump ahead. But the essential point is clear from what he says here. The law didn't cure sin, it made it worse. But Paul's statement about the law in verse 20 really is just setting the stage for the positive statement. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. (laughs) There's one Greek word here that's translated with the four English words, abounded all the more. That word is from the same root as the word abound that's used in verse 15 and the word abundance that's used in verse 17, in all cases talking about the gift. But the difference in verse 20 is that it has the prefix huper or hyper. Now that prefix means the same thing as the prefix super or hyper that we use a lot in English, right? And it means the same thing as the, as the German uber that has become very popular among young people these days. In fact, all of those prefixes come directly from the Greek huper that Paul uses here. In Romans 5.20, Paul is saying that where sin increased or abounded, grace superabounded. As the result, and, and, and the, the result of God's superabundant grace, according to verse 21, is that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness, to eternal life, through Jesus Christ our Lord. (laughs) Again, you see, on the negative side, very concise, sin reigned in death. On the positive side, even so, grace might reign through righteousness, to eternal life, through our Lord Jesus Christ. (laughs) It's easy to see where Paul's emphasis is. Grace is both the cause and effect here. I think this is astounding. The grace of God superabounds in order to bring about the reign of grace. (laughs) Grace upon grace. That was in the worship this morning from John. In Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 7, we see this same idea where grace is both the cause and the effect. He says, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. And then he says, By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. 
And then the purpose clause. In order that, in the ages to come, He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. (laughs) Grace is the cause and grace is the outcome. It's the purpose. He poured out His grace upon us in Jesus Christ in order that He might spend the rest of eternity showering His grace upon us in Jesus Christ. It starts with Christ and it ends with Christ. It starts with grace and it ends with grace. That blows me away. The very last phrase of verse 21 is eminently important. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. That phrase is very much in keeping with the way Paul started and ended the previous section of this chapter in verses 1-11. through 11. In verse 1, he said, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then at the end of that section, verse 11, not only this, we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Every good thing that belongs to us is by God's doing and is ours only through Jesus Christ. When I was talking with the guys this Wednesday morning, Philip, my brother Philip Barrett raised the point that the issue of participation is very important in this passage. And I knew immediately where he was going. There is really only one place in all of verses 12 to 21 where any man other than Adam or Christ is spoken as, spoken of as the subject of an action. And that's in verse 12 where Paul says, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. That's what we did. That's what we contributed to this whole paradigm. We sinned in Adam and we sinned after Adam. There are only two actions and two men in focus in this passage. And there are two outcomes in focus. The one and only action attributed to the rest of us is that we have all sinned. And we said last time that all men were participants in the Adam of sin, both by imputation and by imitation. In other words, not only did we sin in Adam, again, we sinned after Adam, and all of us who know the commandment of God sinned like Adam by transgressing that commandment. The reason Paul says we all suffer the curse of death is because we have all sinned, but he does not say the same about our participation in the obedience of Jesus Christ. He does say we all died because we all sinned, but he does not say we are made alive because we all obeyed. In this passage and in all that Paul has said leading up to this passage in chapters 1 through 5, our participation in the righteousness of Jesus Christ is as the recipients of that righteousness. He does it all and we do nothing apart from trusting in him and not trusting at all in ourselves. Paul was crystal clear about this in uh, chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, when he said, Now to the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. From a very early age, you and I became very practiced and proficient with the sin we inherited. 
But until we have been redeemed and justified by the free gift that comes through Jesus Christ, we have no experience at all with the righteousness that God's character demands of us. It is only in Jesus Christ and through Him that we stand accepted in the eyes of God and that we come to manifest His character. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that we never come to participate experientially in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. May it never be that I should say such a thing. Paul is most assuredly talking in this book about how the righteousness of Jesus comes to characterize us not only positionally, but practically. But he's being very forceful about the fact that it isn't our righteousness. It isn't our righteousness that frees us from the curse of death and sin and places us firmly in the realm of life. And it isn't our righteousness that is worked out in us once we are redeemed. It's the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone. Adam's sin and our sin condemn us. But the righteousness of Christ is that which redeems us, justifies us, reconciles us, gives us life, and makes us righteous. Our Father, thank You for Your amazing love that made us the objects of Your superabundant grace. We ask that You would burn into our hearts how utterly lost we were without that grace and how absolutely saved we are because of it. And then, Father, day by day, we pray that You would increase in us a pervasive gratitude that we may humbly and joyfully display Your righteousness to all men and draw many to Your beloved Son. It is in His name and for His sake that we pray. Amen.